Good afternoon. Uh, my name is June Tinsley. I'm head of communications with NCBI. And today I have the pleasure of being joined by Peter Ryan, who is a service user of NCBI, but um, even more importantly, he is a Fine Gael counsellor and also um, a Paralympian cyclist. So thanks very much, Peter, for, for joining us today. No worries, June. Delighted to be on. Yeah, looking forward Great. to it. I hope you've had a nice sunshine down where you are for the weekend. Yeah, it's been brilliant. It's the only thing that's making it bearable, really, isn't it? It's uh, helping keeping the sanity anyway, so. It is indeed, definitely, definitely. Um, so I suppose if we just kick off, if you want to kind of tell the listeners just a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so like I said, I'm a 29-year-old tit man. I am legally blind. I got a condition called Lieber's Hereditary Optic Neuropathy about 10 years ago. I suppose I'm lucky. Uh, usually if you're doing an interview and you, you say an eye condition, no one has ever heard of it, but... I think our target audience might be a bit more invested. So essentially, yeah, um, it's a hereditary condition, but it takes your central vision. So that came about when I was 20, um, or just turning 20. And yeah, like I was living like what I like to call a perfectly beautiful, simple, normal life up to that point. Like, so like, I suppose I, I talk and I try and advocate on behalf of people in the visually impaired world now for the last don't be it politics, be it ever before that I was doing it as well, but like I had to learn a whole new way of life. And yeah, over the space of about 14 months, I started losing 90% of my vision. So there was a lot of downs for a couple of years and thankfully, look, I got, got things back together and yeah, we're, we're pushing on and, and driving on really. And in terms of like 14 months, that's a, a very short period of time to go from one world that you were familiar with to a, another one where you're, you weren't familiar with. Um, and I suppose, as you say, there were some good days and bad days during that 14 months, but um, it um, no doubt it affected all aspects of your life. Oh, 100%. Like, it's a, like what people don't realise, and like I said, I suppose I'm, I'm speaking to the converted here with this audience, but hopefully there'll be family members listening and, you know, a wider spectrum than, than just the visually impaired community, but like... It was my whole way of life. Like I was 19, I just left school. I was driving a car, working in construction. I was quite sporty even back then. I was, you know, I was making tip teams from the age of under 14. I was soccer mad. I was getting international soccer trials when I was 15. I was, that was just who I was. Like and and you take everything for granted because that's that's how you are at that age. And there's no five-year plans. And yeah, look when when it happened. Although it was all very innocuous at the start, I just started making a few mistakes on hurling field, thought I needed contact lenses. Like the whole thing just snowballed and I was like a, a zombie going through it. And like I know we talk about the 14 months because that's the window that I lost my eyesight for, but it was it was nearer to a three year period, if not more, and, and still have my ups and downs, but like complete culture shock, whole like literally everything that I knew about myself was was gone and being taken away and with that then came hopes and ambitions and the fear and the unknown and the isolation and I don't know where where you want me to stop there but it, it touches every aspect of your life like the, I, I've equated it to some form of grief like as kind of a part of me died and the person I thought I was was going away and drifting away in front of you which is that's a hard piece like kind of sometimes I lament thinking like would it have been better if I just got a bang of a head off a hurley or something and lost my sight in one day and it was just, you know, whereas I was kind of had this mad frustrating 14 months of bit by bit and 
you kind of retrain how to do one thing and then a month later your site gets worse and then you have to navigate a new way and it was oh, it was complete mental torture for about three years but like I said there's there's going to be a, an upside to the story as well hopefully. I suppose the, the upside comes with um, just acknowledging that it takes a bit of time to get there um, and that 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 journey is different for every single person who experiences sight loss. That's that's the thing and it is there's no you walked out of the the hospital and you got your diagnosis and there's not a there's not a pamphlet on how to be blind by you kind of it's very much a mixture of what sits sits well at me versus what's my independence look like that 10 percent vision i have i try and utilize that to the absolute maximum like there's plus and minuses to that you're you can turn yourself into an island trying to be too independent there's a whole new just what sits well with you and what makes you happy in your own skin and that was that was a journey to say the least, but um, yeah, and I, and like thrown in there, and I make no bones about it. There was an awful lot of counselling involved and talking about it, and that whole acceptance piece is huge, um, and it's not to be ignored, you know. So there's there is a lot of hurt in that process, and it needs to be acknowledged if you're going to move on, or at least I'm a believer in that, anyway. So yeah. Well, as you rightly say, is you're going from from literally the the person you you knew knew you were to the person you are now there is a journey and a process and um, it, it is akin to a grief process that has to be gone through so I'm sure many listeners can relate to that. And the thing about it is as well like just kind of a side note to that is it's more than just you going through it and probably early doors I I definitely put up all the fronts and I suppose when it comes to writing the book on this stuff June I did all the wrong things and like I put up the biggest front for so long and kind of pretended that it was okay and like living in my head and not explaining to people that you're frightened or that you're scared or whatever. But like, meanwhile, I was thinking if I do these things and just pretend I'm okay, then the family is okay. Cause you can see that they're hurting as well. And there's probably sure. a bit of, there's probably a bit of bitterness there saying, look, this is my shit. You don't, do you know, you don't need to cry. Cause, and then I, then that turned into, if I don't cry, they're not allowed to cry. And that, yeah. Exactly. It just became a warped kind of mentality of pretending you're okay, but like no one wins doing that because the people yeah. that love you only want you to be okay. So fronting up doesn't, um, like there is a time when you have to move on, but there's a time when you have to stop and dwell and deal with it and actually process the whole thing. And um, yeah, it took me a while to acknowledge that. Yeah, so otherwise it will catch up on you. It really will. It definitely um, did. And Tell us, how did you get connected with NCBI and what kind of service did you receive? Like that, like the service has always been brilliant. There's no two ways about that. But but I was hesitant. I I didn't I didn't relate to the words that were being brandished around. Like I was a cool young 19 year old with, without a care in the world and blind, visually impaired, disability. Those words, like they freaked me out. Like I, I didn't identify with any of that. Um, so I was like, I was probably being told by family members, like they were obviously the ones doing the research. And I was just like, like I said, I was a bit of a zombie for a few months, like just not, not acknowledging, not realizing. And, and I was making life a lot harder on myself. And then the family just said, you have to meet some of these people. Blah, blah. And like in my head, like the only, the only blind person I knew was the, the local blind lad with the dog. And, and you know, and like I, I had a real struggle with who am I? What is this? And on that side of it. And then, like like most fears, like they come out of projecting and you know just thinking in your head. And like as soon as I went in the doors, it was the most welcoming place in the world. And 
it actually helped me in the sense that there's a bit of a community here and you're not the only one and the isolation piece it definitely helped with that and look at the like the service it was the whole spectrum in it like from from even just finding out about the practicalities to equipment to the phones to whatever like there was there was someone at the end of a phone just to help and that's ultimately like if you can encapsulate what what you get that's it like you just have someone to sound things out and like i said there was definitely a nice community piece to going down and you might be doing a few days where you're meeting people that are visually impaired and realizing look life goes on and you're not the only one in this boat and there's reassurance in that as well of course um to to, to have that kind of peer support and people who've um gone through the same thing you have gone through or are going through it as well i definitely think so and it's not, and it doesn't always have to be the heavy like sometimes it's nice to laugh with someone that gets it or you know some of the stupid things we do in the visually impaired world just to make life a bit more normal and there's not many in the world that actually get it or you know they might sympathize but can't empathize and even even the counseling i was getting like like it wasn't probably until that i met a, a visually impaired counselor a blind counselor and i i think half of that was just the the camaraderie and the the meeting maybe meeting someone successful that's jump getting on with it and that there is life again and yeah it was um there's an awful lot to it an awful lot but um isolation isolation is huge i think when you're when you're going through anything so once you can get over that barrier true is, yeah and tell us how did you get involved in um politics politics came about more recently like so i elected last may um to county council um here in tipperary and look, I, like like I said, there was that three-year block where I was going through my own stuff, and then then I started reinventing myself. And one of the one of the things that came out was a whole new lease of life. And I spoke earlier about like a lack of appreciation, and I suppose the political journey like goes back to me fixing myself as a person and realizing who I am and strengths and weaknesses. And I suppose I'd been doing a lot of socially conscious stuff here for the last maybe six seven years and pushing on and enjoying life and that could be fundraising for different charities it could have been just speaking in local schools talking about life the ups and downs resilience whatever like but i suppose i had built up a bit of a cachet here locally where people are like just seeing me as doing a bit of good in the community and so the offer actually came to me to see would i be interested in getting involved in politics and like initially straight up i didn't think i was like and then i was kind of because you had this picture of what is politics and it's wheeling yeah. in a smoky back room or something but uh like you know, when you're at, when I was actually breaking down what is the job essentially like you're advocating for people and you're trying to help and if I can distill the job down to just those two things I'm always going to be happy in the role and god knows there's times when I'm frustrated and whatever but for the most part I'm very very happy that I actually did take the plunge and jump in and like it's it's adding layers to me as a person and you know and it's just like I said, I had this whole list of things that I thought I could never do, and I kind of I'm breaking down barriers all the time, like and setting new goals and just trying things. And like I said, like the appreciation and gratitude for life is back, and I just think with that, you need to push on and do things that you know make you a little bit frightened. But ultimately, once you once you get over it, then you're so glad you took on that that project or whatever. So it um. Yeah, it came about randomly, but I don't regret it at the same time. Maybe there's an element of fate to it as well. 
Um, well, like the skill set involved, like as well, like because, like I said, I'm the biggest advocate for the visually impaired world, and we'll all say you can do anything, and that's great, like to a point. But there's there is practicalities involved. I can't go back working in construction. I can't, you know, or not in the way that I want to be. And so, this, yeah. like, like I do have a skill set around. Well, I'd like to think around communicating and just that empathy piece and wanting to help. So, yeah, like utilize my strengths. Like sometimes when you have a disability, when you have anything wrong with you, it's not just a disability thing, but we all we all lean on the thing that's wrong with us. Or, you know, like, it'd be very easy for me to say, I can't do this because I'm vision impaired and I can't do that because I'm vision And then before you know it, you're sitting down and you're doing nothing. So like, you don't know unless you try. And like, why not lean into my strengths and see see where they take me? So um, yeah, that's... Well, best luck in that role. And I presume um, the debates in the... Uh, county council would be quite similar to the episode in the west wing would that be fair to say oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) riveting yeah (laughs) (laughs) well honestly like it was such a learning curve for me like like i said well i went in socially conscious and whatnot and i had the things that i wanted to implement it's a whole new trade and a, a new workplace and you have to learn and i probably give the first nine months just learning reading and learning and like I suppose you're always you might have an element of imposter syndrome. You're you're sitting down beside a lad who's been there for forty years, and you're you're thinking like, is my point as relevant as what he's saying? And you kind of have to dismiss all that. And you, you soon you grow into the role and realize that like, you know, everyone here has an opinion. And once I'm advocating on behalf of others, you know, it's not strictly wrong. I'm doing. There's obviously a requirement. So yeah, it's a. Not quite the cut and thrust of the West Wing, but um, look at we're uh, I'm having my own fun in there at the same time. True, and to be fair, the, the the principles underpinning it are the same in terms of making sure there's a forum to for opinions to be heard and shared, and uh, to make the laws and policies going to be more representative of the community that they're to serve. Oh, it's it's really interesting that way. Like I, I suppose, uh, like I wasn't in there long, and I just started realizing, like you you start trying to figure out what is politics, and then. You just realize it touches everything so it's um it's been a huge education like so no i'm definitely i'm, I'm enjoying it that way just uh i just don't know would um nbc or cnn get a a, a series out of our meetings that's the only thing but <laughs> it's, it's good though it's good we're enjoying it you never know you never know um and how are you finding the um commitment to the to the chamber and all the work with, with associated with being a female counselor with uh, your passion for cycling and the grueling training that's involved um if you're planning on heading off to the Olymp- Paralympics yeah it was a big um it was a big decision at the time like when I was getting into politics and and that like the people that were not not anti me getting involved like but my near and dear council and that was the the first question for everyone like how is it going to affect Tokyo and like I was always determined that if you want something enough you'll make it work but it was definitely, it was trying at times and there was times when I felt I was being a really good cyclist and times when I was being a really good counsellor and trying to marry the two. It was, it was a whole new work-life balance for me and that was, it was a change from, like I had habits built up over six years that just had to go out the window and be far more efficient and I, and I thought I was efficient anyway. <laughs> so yeah, it was a big, it was a big work week but I'm so glad I did it like and I'm looking at my teammates now at the moment with COVID and like they they cycle and do nothing else and you know and they're they're struggling now in in a whole lot of aspects so um, I've always been a big believer in the the work-life balance and I I didn't want to be just a cyclist like I wanted to be doing more of myself and um 
And how did you get involved in cycling? Obviously, your passion before that was GEA and soccer, as you mentioned earlier. So how did you get involved in cycling? Um, a combination of things, really. So it kind of definitely culminated around the like a good series of counselling again. But um, it's kind of you're looking at life and realising, look, it's not over. It's We have to have to get back doing stuff. And I there was a Paralympic Open Day back 2013-ish. Um, up in UCD and I went up there it was very very innocuously wanting to get back into sport and getting over some of my hang-ups around the word disability or the word visually impaired or what have you and I just I just wanted to get back a piece of my old life I suppose and stop ruling things out without trying it because um, I was sold on this notion that sport is gone work is gone this is gone that's gone and, and it was all the things that I used to do and I always say like comparison is the chief of joy and that was all I, when I was pitching sport, all I was pitching was the dressing room with hurl, hurling or soccer or football. Like, So um, I went up to this open day and just wanted to do something and open mind. And there was no, there was no big plan, but I, um, yeah, I went and did a trial with the cycle and just, it seemed a bit of fun and what have you. And there was a club, I suppose on the practical end of things, there was a club after starting up in my local area about a year before. It was kind of around the upsurge of cycling and nationally it was going well. And um, yeah, they were they were keen with whatever I was doing at the trial. And they said, look, you have a bit of potential here. Would you consider it? Blah, blah, blah. And um, so I just jumped two footed in. And like I said, it wasn't wasn't to go to Rio or go to Tokyo. It was just to get a sweat up and like, in a few endorphins and just, you know, just a bit of my old way of life. And. Thankfully, yeah, I haven't looked back because the whole thing just kind of, yeah, <laughs> took on a life of its own then before I knew where I was. And um, it is tandem cycling you're involved in, isn't it? Yeah, tandem cycling, yeah. which is huge. And like I say, even going from a team sport to a solo sport like cycling, like I, I had no previous background in it, able-bodied. I didn't even have a bike as a young lad. I, like I say, I lived near the Harlan field across the road from the soccer field. I didn't, didn't have use for a bike. So it was... Um, yeah, it was a it was a steep learning curve, but it kind of got trust upon me because it wasn't there was no let's go to the Olympics. It was let's go for a forty k cycle. That was all where my head was at, and I think after six or seven months cycling, I won a national title, and that's when I got called up into the Irish squad. When I, I bet I bet lads that were involved in the Irish team, and I wasn't I was kind of the nobody on the scene. So um, yeah, that just kind of people took a bit of notice in and. Before I knew it, the Irish team were kind of putting the arm around me and saying we can help you with this and help you with that. And yeah, that's kind of so like I went from basically not cycling and to I was in Rio in the Olympic Village three and a half years later. So it's a cool little story. It is. You're, understandably, your head must have been in an absolute spin going, God, how did this all happen so quickly? Um, it's a huge accomplishment. It really is. And tell us about obviously with the Paralympics in Tokyo being deferred for another year, um, how is that affecting your kind of psychological training? It's it's definitely tough. Like I was saying, like looking at my teammates, they might be going through worse things, but um, but it's it's hard because like like we're training anywhere between kind of twelve and seventeen hours a week on the bike, then throwing your gym work, throwing a bit of physio training. Like I had a. 30 hour week sketched out just to do a training and but underpinning all that is the why like you'll you'll get up at six to do a, a bike session because you know you have a race in a month's time or you're going to a world cup qualifier in three weeks and 
like there's always a way to getting out of that warm bit and it's like the rug is being pulled from underneath us because we're like yeah. well, we don't know when we're racing again we don't know when well like when i'll meet the teammates when we have a training camp when any of that stuff so it's been it's been really hard the motivation one lie like it's it's been tough to be like that disciplined pro athlete lifestyle but at the same time sport is one of the things that keeps me on an even keel and like if i was to sketch out what does my perfect day look like exercise is definitely a part of that so like i'm lucky it's kind of a way of life for me now as well rather than just um training because i have a race so like the intensity is knocked out of it but i'm sport is actually keeping me on an even keel and i i go out early i do a bike session i might do a run in the evening or something just to like I said, box off my day. I'm working from home all day, every day now. It's it's completely different way of life. So I'm using have it. You able, have you been able to meet up with the person who's your tandem? I have a stationary, I have a walk bike in the shed. Yeah. So like I would have been doing maybe 60, 70% of my work in that shed on my own anyway. Because like the guy I race with is from Clontarf, I'm based in Turles. We oh, might okay. only be able to in his life, my life, <clears throat> we might only meet up once a week. Then maybe three times a week when we're coming into season and there's a bit more regular room. But um, no, that's tough. And even Sports Ireland have given us a directive now, like saying because of social distancing, we can't actually. So not not to mind the five kilometre limits and that side of it. We can't actually train together because of that unless we decide to live together and cocoon. So yeah. it's, um, it's imposing a real challenge on us like, and the dynamic. And you're trying to keep the the team spirits high and this but there's no like and hate to sound negative here is like that's not what i like doing at all but there's no major end in sight to those barriers without a vaccine so that's that's very tough to take we don't know when we're going to race again essentially um but yet you're trying to keep the fitness up so i've kind of taken on this mentality that look there's no point in absolutely like draining the mental reserve trying to train hard train hard when you don't know you can't plan for your like all my training would always be like periodized and tapered to a certain event, but that's kind of open-ended now. So I'm just going to keep generically very fit. And that's all you can do. Yeah, exactly. And not make any knee-jerk decisions, not do anything. Just come out of this period refreshed, enjoying my bike, enjoying my exercise. And when it comes time to put down real structure, I'll be ready to go. And hopefully your your teammates too are in the same situation that they're they're ready to go when the green light has been given. It's just a question of wondering when that green light will be given. That's it. And there won't be there won't be a big window lead in time. It's just gonna be the traps will be opened and we've we'll go from no race to you have one in three weeks' time. And like most of most of my big races it takes sixteen weeks of prep to get ready for it. So it's not uh so you kinda need to yeah, have that base fitness very good and high and just ready to ready to roll whenever the track's open yeah it's true it's um it's an interesting to, um to, to hear how um the, the code pandemic has certainly affected you and, and many other paralympians who are wanting to maintain physical fitness levels but are just so unsure as to the landscape of when their team is either going to unite again or um when the next race will be to, in order to continue to to prepare it's it's a, it's a hard one to to work out yeah and and then like the other side look i know it's not the the biggest problem in the world with all this but like we're all we're all selfish in our own little way and this is this is big in my world i was planning on retiring after tokyo and just uh just heading full-time into 
the real world, I suppose. But um, but look, we'll figure it out. It's not uh, it's not going to torment me too much. But it's um, yeah, I've done <laughs> I've done my dwelling over it now. I've just made my peace, and what will be will be. And and roll on twenty twenty one. That's all you can kind of to look forward to. That's it. Um, and I suppose, Peter, is there any one piece of advice that you would give another person who has recently lost their sight? Well, one piece of advice, like I've I've loads of advice. <laughs> but, uh, I suppose to to encapsulate, like definitely, look, it's not over. That's that's a message that really needs to be understood, like because we become prisoners of our own hate and like we like doesn't matter what age like you kind of have this blueprint or people people around you think everything's going to be different and it will but like not everything that has happened to me is for the worse like there's the, like you know if I'm having my more profound moments I think I'm living a better life as weird as that might be to say and whatnot like but I really examined myself and who I was beforehand and different things and and I was carefree to the point of blasé, like, but whereas now I can have the bit between the teeth and I've learned things about myself and life and my capabilities. And there's, you know, I'm doing things now that I'm sure I would never have done. And, and there's something cool in that. And the fact that I am as content as I am and I'm on, like go around talking in the schools, talking in businesses, whatever, wherever the case may be. And the, not like everyone has a problem. And I suppose took me a while to realize like I kind of thought I was the only one in the world with a problem and you realize every house in this country something comes in the door of it and it's your reaction that's going to define you and um, so look if you're in the position where you've lost your sight one it's not over and two it's not terminal and you kind of have to make the most of it and thankfully like I am and you know and I can't and like that with this podcast or whatever like but if there's anyone in the visually impaired community that wants to reach out or contact or anything like that, I'm more than happy to talk or talk to family members because you need to meet people and engage and meet those peers. And you know, I think that that's definitely a good step. And I suppose that's a, a very practical and reassuring um, message to, to send out to people. Um, and I, I suppose just to conclude for, from the NCBI end that our helpline is open Monday to Friday, 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. And the number is 1850 Um, and we'll obviously happily try and um, offer as much support right across the country as we can. Um, yeah, I, I suppose, Peter, all I can say is thanks very much for, for sharing your, your story with us. I wish you the very best as um, your life as a, as a counsellor. I hope the West Wing um, TV programme is around the corner for you. Um, and until then, continue with the training for the Paralympics. It sounds a a huge goal that I hope you achieve with ease. Hopefully, hopefully now. But um, yeah, thanks a million for having me anyway. And yeah, keep the good work going. Like I know it must be must be hard um, trying to be distant from people when they want to jump a service, but things like this definitely help. So I know I'm absolutely binging on podcasts at the moment. So hopefully now you have a, a few new members off the back of it and people think about their next steps. So thanks a million. Great. Thank you very much. Cool. Cheers. All right. Thanks.